excellent, not very many. Acts is a wonderful, wonderful book. And it was one of those moments uh, for me um, when I planned this about four months ago or so. We were studying through the book of Exodus, right? So one of the very first books of the Old Testament to an earlier book in the New Testament. And, and I started to see all these moments as we were studying through Exodus going, oh, we're going to talk about that again in Acts, only in the full fulfillment of what God had planned. And I would like to claim that that was my own brilliance, but you all know that that's not true. Um, it just seemed like God just said, Greg, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about it originally in the Old Covenant context, and then we're going to look at it in its fulfilled state. And so I hope what you see this morning and, and kind of every morning as we go through, I don't know, this might take us two years, we'll see. But as, I'm not joking though, that's the funny part. Um, as, we, as we hit some of these passages, I hope that what you'll see is a deeper depth, a deeper depth, a depth of understanding of the old covenant that we looked at. And I hope that the Old Testament will begin to make more sense to you as we unpack it from the New Testament. I, I know reading the New Testament and studying through it sometimes feels either easier to understand or maybe it's more relevant in our lives. But I hope that what we'll see is that all of the new points to the old, points back to it, and fulfills it in unique ways so that we can see and understand how to read the Old Testament as well. The reason that I wanted to study through Acts before I realized all these kind of detail moments that God kind of was showing me as we were studying Exodus is predominantly the beginning of Acts is about what? Anybody remember? The start of the church. Thank you, Jason. The start of the church. And the church is something that I love deeply. And, and, and by that, first and foremost, I love this church deeply. Love you all. It's an honor and a privilege for us to get to live here among you and, and study the word of God and learn things of faith and, and learn how to practically uh, demonstrate the things that we read. And, and all of that's wonderful. But I, I mean... If you step back and look at the church, the global church, I love the church. And the more that I study the church, the more that I'm convinced that Scripture teaches us that commitment and passion for the local church is what's going to grow our spiritual lives infinitely faster than if we ever did try to do it on our own. That God's primary vehicle to bring change in the world and to ultimately bring the gospel to a world in desperate need of it comes through the church. Yeah, I say to people a lot is, is I don't believe in the church because I'm a pastor. I believe in, or I'm a pastor because I believe in the church. It's, it's not my goal to try and convince you, man, the church is awesome. I want the scriptures to do that for you and I want us to become People who look at it and go, as, as Ernie said, man, I want to go to church. I want to come together. I want to sing praises to God. I want to confess my faults. I want to restore relationships. I, I want to cry out for, for help because I'm broken and I don't know what to do. And this is where that occurs. Not only in the doors of this building, but together as we study scripture, as we submit our lives under Christ. And so I'm really excited for that because my goal for 2024 is simply this, is that you will learn that the church matters. 
and that it will be the thing that grows your faith more exponentially than anything else. My goal is not more people in the seats, though that would be awesome. My goal is not uh, more money in our offering plate, though maybe our treasurer would be happy if that was the case. I'm just kidding, by the way. There's lots, it's okay. Notice I said that after we took the offering. Anyway, my goal is not that we run more ministry programs or that we have a, I don't know, fill in the blank. Those are not my goals. My goal is that we each individually would grow, that we would learn to trust God and that we would come together and that this would be an event that you do not want to miss every week because you know the people who are here and you love them and you want to live life with them. I hope that's what we'll see. So this is where we are, Acts. Now, before we read those five verses, uh, I want to give you just a little context, just if, if you haven't, maybe you've never read the book of Acts. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've maybe not even read any of the Bible. Maybe you walked into the doors this morning because you knew you should, but you have no idea who Jesus even is. So let me give you just a real quick synopsis of what this New Testament, this, this season that we've celebrated in Advent, the coming of Jesus, the New Testament takes place on the other side of this. And the first four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called the Gospels, and they're essentially four different uh, accounts of all that Jesus did, said, taught, who he was, what he came to accomplish. Four different uh, accounts of that, and, and that's really not that surprising to us if he's the most uh, influential character who's ever lived, and, and actually Time Magazine said as much last year. Then it's not surprising that we have several different accounts of the things that he did and taught, because we're all going to have unique perspective on events that we witness together. Well, Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus comes to the earth and he lives a, a life that you and I could not. And by that, what I mean is he fully submits to God the Father. And he lives for God and not himself. And he never sins. <coughs> and even just saying that sounds crazy. Because we can't probably make it, I don't know, half an hour without thinking something that we shouldn't. If you ever you know, need to check, do I have sin nature, just drive down Main Street. And, no, never mind, we won't go there. <laughs> if you're visiting us, we love the tourists. We love that you're here. We just hope that you watch for the crosswalks. The point is that we could not fix it, but Jesus did. And he offered his life in place of ours. We call that substitutionary atonement, that he died in place for us so that we could live. But after Jesus died, then he rose to life again, conquering death. And then all four of the Gospels end. And we come into this book of Acts and we kind of think, what's next? Jesus rose again and he gave us a commission that we're going to talk about in just a moment. But how is, how is these 12 individuals, Matthias replacing Judas, how are these 12 individuals going to go out and, and radically change the world, and which they did because we're here. And so there's proof of that. 
So before we read, I want to address just a couple of things about the book of Acts so that we can see it. What we're going to talk about in the coming weeks is the Holy Spirit. Jesus rises again and and he teaches his disciples, says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who's actually going to accomplish this mission that I'm going to give you. And so what does that look like? Well, if you grew up like I did in a very conservative place, is the Holy Spirit was kind of this very untangible thing that we didn't really know how to quantify or talk about. On the flip side, you can grow up in another Christian tradition that overemphasizes and says that the Spirit will tell you absolutely everything of every moment and every day, and and you can live in that. And and what we're going to see is that actually there's a balance that we need to find. But before we get to the Spirit, we need to address this idea. How many of you have a little title or a heading at the beginning of your book of this Bible? What does it say? Oh, I mean like the actual title of the book. So who, who just, it says, just acts. Okay, your Bible's right. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's more helpful. Let me say it that way. How many of yours says the Acts of the Apostles? That's less helpful. It's not wrong, but I think it directs us in a direction that, that the scriptures are not intending to go. Uh, a few years ago, I took a seminary class on this, and, and there was a guy named Alan Thompson who I had to read a book from him. His book was titled this, The Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus, Luke's Account of God's Unfolding Plan. And in the beginning of the book, he argues that this idea of thinking of it as the acts of the apostles makes us think in our mind that the apostles are the main character of the book when the truth is the main character of the book is Jesus. Now, Jesus is going to work primarily through the Holy Spirit, but it's not the, it's not the apostles that are going to do great things. It's the Holy Spirit who does great things through the apostles. And that might sound like semantics to you, but I, think it's, I don't think it is because I think it can distract us from studying the Holy Spirit and trying to figure out what is he trying to do in my life and what is he trying to show me and teach me and, and how should I be living But if we look at it as, oh, the apostles were amazing. Look at all the miracles they did. I could never do those kinds of things. Well, then we're looking in the wrong direction. Alan Thompson, um, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, but the book of Luke and the book of Acts are written both by Luke himself, and they're kind of a part one and part two uh, thing. And so he refers to Luke and Acts as Luke together, and he says this. Consequently, we find that Luke wants to be read in the light of the Old Testament promises and the continuing reign of Christ in the inaugurated kingdom. That's how we're supposed to read, not just Luke, but Acts as well. That Christ's inaugurated kingdom is going to flourish because Jesus is not done his ministry, though there is a transition that happens. And the Holy Spirit's going to be the one to accomplish those purposes. So let's keep that in mind as we study through it. And in a minute when we read, you're going to see, and I already said this, is Luke is part one and Acts is part two. But I need to address something about Luke beforehand because some of you, if you go home and you read and you study, you might ask a question 
who is Luke? How many times do you think Luke is mentioned by name in the Bible? Three. Is that surprising? Now, Luke doesn't mention himself necessarily in the book of Luke. And in the book of Acts, later on, he's going to say we a lot because as him and Paul go on missionary journeys, they do things. But Paul's only going to reference him in three different verses throughout the New Testament. And so in modern times, people uh, have a problem with this, and they go, maybe Luke didn't write Luke and Acts. Maybe it was somebody else. Well, this tradition that Luke wrote, it goes all the way back to the 2nd century, uh, century A.D. to Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon in Gaul. And it was never really, not really, was it ever questioned that Luke was the authentic writer of this until our modern times now. It's just we have this problem where we like to look way back in history and go, hold on, there's not enough proof for me. But all the early church fathers, it was enough proof for them. So why isn't it for us? And actually, when you get into it and you start to see and study, is, is Luke is mentioned to, to be a doctor. And there's a few little medical things that we're going to see in the book of Acts that he kind of focuses on from a unique perspective. And you might think, well, that's not enough proof for it to be Luke. And that alone wouldn't be. But as you really start to enter into this, you start to see that there's really no reason for us to deny that Luke wrote it. There are a few modern scholars that, that, that aren't convinced, and they'll say Luke may have wrote it, but the vast majority of everybody else says that he did. So just if you come across something where it doesn't explicitly state Luke, I want you to know that there's plenty of good evidence to suggest that. One thing that people will say, which I want to debunk this real quick, is they'll say that Luke wrote this because Luke uses far more technical language because he was a doctor all through the book of Luke and Acts. The problem is that no technical language exists in the book of Luke or Acts. It's something that we've read into the text to try and prove a point. We've made a, we've made a conclusion and then looked to support that with speculation. Luke actually writes this very clearly and plainly so that everyone could understand it. Now, what Luke does that's different from all the other uh, Gospels and then into the New Testament, he's very detailed. Not technical, but detailed. And you'll see that if you look, most of Luke's chapters are a lot more verses. A lot, the, the conversations are a lot more than in the others, only because he was more detailed. Does that mean that he was a doctor? I think we're speculating there. Luke writes both the book of Luke and the book of Acts to somebody. What does your first verse say in, in Acts chapter 1, 1? It says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given the commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he writes this book to Theophilus. Anybody know who Theophilus is? Again, modern speculation takes us down a rabbit hole that's not helpful. Theophilus was a Greek name that was very common. Uh, but if you translate it into English, it means lover of God. 
And so people will sometimes suggest he's writing to all followers of Jesus. Well, he is. But he's writing to Theophilus first. And he says, Theophilus, uh, in the book of Luke, he writes and says, I've written all these things so that you might know all the things that Jesus came to began to do and to teach. Why would somebody write a letter like this and address it to somebody like this? Again, this is, this is all pre-rabbit trail stuff just to show you there are good explanations for this. Theophilus uh, was the financial sponsor of this letter, of both letters. Why does that matter? I remember sitting in my seminary class asking that question, going, big deal, because when I want to write a letter, I just go sit down on my computer and I write it, and then I hit print, and I hit print however many copies that I want. But back then, it was not the case. It was very expensive to produce a letter, and it was very expensive to copy it. And you may have guessed the disciples themselves did not exactly make a a lucrative living. So they looked for people who had wealth to help them spread the message of the gospel. And that's why Theophilus is mentioned, not because it's written only to him. It it would be the same as perhaps us in today uh, going to the opening of a hospital. Somebody's about to cut the ribbon and they make a public statement of the biggest financial donor. Thank you to this family for helping us to make this become a reality and open. That's kind of the same thing that we see here. Last thing before we read it, because this was very, very helpful. There's a pattern or a cycle that continues through the book of Acts. First, we see that Christian leaders arise and they preach the gospel in various places. Second thing that happens after that is listeners respond, often in huge numbers. They respond to the gospel and are they, they are added to the church. That's going to be very significant for us in a few weeks. The third thing that happens is persecution breaks out against the church and against these new believers in Jesus. And then lastly, God intervenes in unique ways to protect the church and sometimes rescue the leaders from their difficult situations. Why this pattern is going to be so helpful for us is because we live in a time where we do everything we can to alleviate suffering and alleviate persecution. And when we get persecuted against, we cry foul. And we say, this shouldn't happen. This isn't right. But what we're going to see in the book of Acts is to be a follower of Jesus means you're inviting persecution against your life from the outside world. That it's not a a strange thing that this would happen to us, but that this is the cycle of how the gospel is presented. People respond. Persecution hits. God defends the church. That's the normal cyclical pattern sharing the gospel and responding to the gospel. And so perhaps we should think of how we view suffering, how we view persecution, and maybe why in our culture right now we have so little of it. We're going to talk about that in the weeks coming ahead as well. So let's read these five verses. I already read two, but let's go again. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them about his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now next week, we're going to look at how some of these things occurred. But there's a few things for us to just note in there. As I mentioned, Jesus is the main character here, and Luke gives us that note when he says, I've dealt with all that Jesus did. What does it say? Began to do and to teach. Implication is what? He's not finished. There's more coming. And so this part, this book of Acts, this is going to be the continuation of all that Jesus did teach when he was taken up. But he says that the Holy Spirit kind of met with them there. And, and here's the thing. This is really important for today's world. Verse 3, it says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering. We'll talk about that again in a few weeks. Appearing to them over how long? Didn't we just study through Exodus? How many times did you see the number 40 in Exodus? A lot, right? We should be looking at that, reminding ourselves, this is a significant moment. This is a significant time. The number 40 represents completion. So Jesus came. He appeared to them about the kingdom of God. Now, here's the thing, and, and i got to clarify this because there's some really messy stuff that's happened. In our modern times, again, there is a, a minority movement about what exactly it was that Jesus presented for these 40 days. But here's the thing. What does it say? Does it tell us exactly what he did? Kind of. He talked to them about what? The kingdom of God. What did Jesus talk pre-cross to his people, to his followers about? The kingdom of God. Is it different? So there's this movement that everything that Jesus taught in those 40 days is stuff that we don't have written, but if you are close enough with God, God will reveal to you and you'll really understand how God wants you to live. That belief is gaining, or it's gaining momentum in the Western world. Here's the problem with that is it's called Gnosticism, and it was rebuked deeply in Paul's day. People thought, man, I got a special revelation from Jesus, and he taught me something brand new that's never been written or that was never said, and so this is how I'm going to live. But the problem is the scriptures go against that logic. The scriptures don't teach that the Spirit is going to give us brand new things. And we'll talk about this in just a moment with three convincing proofs of that. But what we need to realize is that everything that Jesus taught in these 40 days was the same thing that he taught the first three and a half years, but all of a sudden there was a pivotal moment that made them understand things better. And what was that? Christ's resurrection. You remember Jesus is preparing his disciples in the Gospels for his death, and they don't get it. They think he's just there to save them from Roman tyranny. Maybe that's not all they think, but that's a big part of what they think. 
And so when Jesus dies, what you see of the disciples is they don't know what to do anymore. I said this uh, to one of our Bible study groups, is what we see of some of the disciples is they just go back to what they knew before. Peter watches Jesus die, and granted, he rejected that he even knew Christ three times as Jesus had predicted. But what does he go off to do? He says, I don't know what to do. I'm going, I'm going back to the boat. I'm going back to fish. Even after Jesus died, they didn't really understand. When Jesus rose and appeared to them, uh, we see kind of one or two examples in the Gospels of that, and they still don't really believe, right? And, and Thomas gets the brunt of this, but what does he say? Unless I put my finger in the holes where the nails were, I will not believe that he rose from the dead. Except that Jesus told them that he was going to rise from the dead many times. They didn't get it yet, but here, in 40 days, what they learned is that everything that Jesus taught, everything that Jesus said is more clear to them because they're living on this side of the resurrection now. So again, why does this matter? I think this matters deeply because if we start to think that Jesus taught something new, something that isn't explicitly stated but is only given to certain people, then we undo everything that Jesus said to begin with in the Gospels and it contradicts itself. So we need to have a consistent hermeneutic of who is Jesus. How do we understand him? So let's look at three passages that really make this clear to us. In John 14, as I mentioned, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his death. But he's promising that the Holy Spirit, he refers to him as the helper at first. He says, the helper is going to come. And so I'm going to read verse 26. He says, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. These are not two different things. He's not going to teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Those are the same Thing. And you see examples of that throughout scriptures where all of a sudden the disciples go, did not Jesus tell us that? And we didn't see it? The Holy Spirit's primary role is to bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said and done. And I think in our times we look at it and we say, the Holy Spirit's going to tell me which house I should buy or which person I should marry. Or what school I should go to. And we start to think it's so specific when the Holy Spirit's job is to convict you of sin and righteousness. The Holy Spirit's job is to show you that Jesus was the Christ. So that we would submit and surrender our lives to him. And we're going to see that in the book of Acts being lived out. The second passage that we can look at is the Great Commission. <clears throat> this is Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus says, <coughs> excuse me, now remember, this is post-resurrection. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? Teach them to observe what? All that I have. What's the tense? It's past tense. All that I have commanded you. All that I have taught you up until this moment, that is what you're to go teach others, but you're going to know something different because the Spirit's going to bring to your remembrance all that I've taught you, and you're going to understand it more, more fully. 
Jesus didn't say to his disciples, teach them all that I have commanded you, and then for 40 days go, hang on, everything I just said was irrelevant. We're going to teach you something new. Jesus wouldn't have given the Great Commission the way that he did, though. Perhaps the most compelling argument is in Luke 24. Again, post-resurrection, but as the book of Luke comes to an end, in verses 13 to 35, we see the road to Emmaus story. There's two people, and they're walking towards Jerusalem, talking about all the things that had happened, and, and by that I mean the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And it says in those verses that they had hoped he was to be the Messiah, but, but he died, and so they were confused. But there was some group of people that claimed that he rose again, and, and they didn't know how to deal with all of this. And Jesus walks up to them, and, and he hides himself from them. In other words, they don't recognize it's Jesus. They just see a man there. And they start talking with him, and Jesus says, what are you talking about? And he said, all these things that have happened. And, and the scripture says that what Jesus does is that he talks with them, he uh, opens up for them all of the Old Testament. And it says he begins with the law and the prophets to open up their eyes to see that Jesus was the Christ. Notice he didn't say, okay, ignore everything in the Old Testament. I got something new for you. He said, let me show you how all of this pointed to the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. And then, oh, by the way, he says, I am and he disappears. And the two of them standing there, they, they don't really know how to process what's happened, but they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he explained to us all the things of the Old Testament? If we ignore the Old Testament, then we ignore everything that Jesus taught. Now, he helped us understand it in a new way, and the Holy Spirit does that even to a further degree. And you see this with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, you've heard it said. And he quotes Old Testament parts or quotes that people use to try and explain the Old Testament. And then he helps them understand you're missing the point. Here is what the actual point of that law or that, that, that writing was. And now we're going to see that even more clearly on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus because the Spirit reminds us of all that Jesus did and said. And so if there's going to be people that are going to say to you, well, actually, we don't really know what Jesus taught during these 40 days, and so there's a new thing, a new idea, we can go, that is inconsistent with everything that the Bible teaches. We're creating a new God. We're creating a new Jesus to suit our own needs. The thing I've seen the most from people who hold this view is they'll come up to me and they'll say, the Holy Spirit told me, you have to, and then they'll say something else. You have to do this. You have to say that. And most of the time what I've found is it contradicts the rest of Scripture. And so is the Holy Spirit divided against himself? Does he not know what he's trying to teach me or show me? What I see is people don't want to be held accountable and they want to say, I just live by the Spirit and whatever the Spirit tells me to do, I will do. That's a really good theory only if you know the Holy Spirit and you know the Old Testament and you know everything that God has taught us. They're consistent. It's one book, start to finish with one message. I know that was a huge rabbit trail, but I think it's super important in our world today. 
You live, you and I live in a time where you can ask a question, you can pop on YouTube and you can see 350 different people answer it. And you can see some really convincing logic, but do they know the scriptures? The day that I've said this before, but the day that I come up here and I say, man, the Holy Spirit's taught me something brand new. It's not in the Bible. I'm going to teach you something. That's the day you should all get up and leave. And I don't say that lightly. I mean that seriously. Because the Holy Spirit's not going to do that. He's going to remind us of everything that Jesus has said and taught. I'm not going to say to you, man, I have this new message of hope for you that, that get up and leave. And then call the elders, call Randy and be like, it's time to fire him. <laughs> like, I'm being serious here. Because that's what's happening in the North American church. Because people do not know the Bible, but they are really good motivational speakers. And they come up and they tell you stuff that sounds good. And then you get an idea of who God is, but you're not worshiping the God of the Bible. You're worshiping a God that you've created in your own idea of what he should do and what he should say. And then all of a sudden, we can start to look at this and go, well, God wouldn't allow suffering or pain or hurt. Have you read the book of Job? How do we wrestle with that? Well, I don't have to if I don't know the Bible. But then you're not worshiping the one true God. You're doing the same thing the Israelites did in the, books of the book of Exodus. We'll worship God, but we also want to worship these things. So what did Jesus teach for these 40 days? The kingdom of God, the same thing that he taught while he was with his disciples for those three and a half years. He commissions his disciples to stay in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Don't depart from here, but wait for the promise of the Father. Then he talks about John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit many day, not many days from now. And so they wait we're going to talk about this more in the coming weeks. But what's really interesting to me is that they wait, but they go wait collectively and pray for the Holy Spirit to come. They don't just go, well, Jesus said this is going to happen. I guess I can just go home and, and it'll all work out exactly as it's supposed to. They committed themselves to prayer. That's very convicting for me because I usually just trust in the sovereignty of God, which is good, I should, but I also sometimes trust in the sovereignty of God so much that I go, God, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So I just trust you. I'm not really communicating with God then, am I? I'm not really sharing with him my hurts and my confusion and my uncertainty. If you read the book of Psalms, what you see is people crying out to God because things are happening that they don't understand. And they're submitting themselves under the leadership of God, and they're saying, you are in control, but they're also saying, but I don't understand it. Please give me the faith that I need to, to grasp it. That's what we should be doing with God all the time in our lives. God, why has this illness happened? You can sit there and go, it's all, God's got a plan, no problem. Or you can go, God... I really need to wrestle with this with you. I need to come close to you so that I can learn how to trust you. That's what the disciples do. But what does it mean that you will, it says, um, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Well, there's lots of confusion about that, and we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks as well, because wasn't Jesus discipled with, or baptized with water? And doesn't he command in the Great Commission to baptize people? So is this one baptism? Is this two baptisms? Can you be baptized with water once and then with the Holy Spirit a second time? 
when does the Holy Spirit come? I think these are questions that Luke is preparing for Theophilus and for everyone reading it so that we would be able to learn and track and see, oh, this is the Holy Spirit. This is what he's like. And why this is important, again, is because I've been in rooms where people will say things like, if you haven't spoken in tongues as an evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you aren't saved. What verse does that come from? Anybody? Oh, right, it doesn't. But people believe it because some teacher said it and they go, well, have I, have I been given the spirit? I got I to gotta figure it. Well, we're going to talk about that. But we're going to talk about that from how Luke illustrates for us the book of Acts so that we see it. The point is this. As we think about the theology of the church, we call that ecclesiology. As we think about the theology of the Holy Spirit, as we think about the theology of who Jesus was, Christology, as, as we look to what the purpose of our lives is moving forward, it's all spelled out for us in the book of Acts so that we would know who God is, what he's called us for, how we ought to live, and why. But we live in a time where we're throwing theology away left, right, and center. I don't like this teaching, so we're just going to get rid of it. I don't like this teaching, so we're just going to get rid of it. And we, it's because we don't know what the scriptures teach to us. And so I hope that in the coming weeks ahead of us that we'll do what, this, what the disciples did here, is that we'll gather together, that we'll cry out to God, and we'll say, God, show us through the power of the Holy Spirit all these things that are written that would remind us of all that you said and all that you taught. If we believe that Jesus is the most important, the only true thing that matters in our life, then we ought to read the Gospels and the book of Acts regularly because it really helps us pursue Christ for who he is, not for what the culture is telling us. So that's where we're headed. That's what we're going to do, and that's my goal for us. I know this is a weird sermon. It's not a normal sermon. Thing, but I think it needs the explanation. I think it needs the background so that when we read these things, we go, oh, yeah, this is written back then. Oh, it's consistent. Oh, it's the same message. This is what Jesus has called us to. Let's pray. God, as we look forward to learning about the church, to learning about this organization, this thing that, that's this entity that you've created and how you've called us to gather together, to worship, to do ministry, to go and to share the gospel with people. I pray that we would study this book so that we would see that we want to do it in a way in which you have called us to, not in ways that we think we should. God, I pray that we would learn and we would become more clear on who the Holy Spirit is and what his role is in our lives and how we can submit to him and live in his power. But how we can do it in a way that is biblical and that honors what scripture says to us. God, as we read things that remind us back to the Old Testament, the imagery that we're going to see of the temple the pillar of fire. These details that we're going to see that we can look back to and go, oh, this is what you meant. This is how I should understand this post-resurrection. I pray that we would care deeply about those things so that as we seek to be your ambassadors, that we would be your ambassadors on your terms, 
and not on our own terms. God, help us to follow you the way that you have revealed yourself to be. Help us to see that in the book of Acts. As we go from this place now, may we be curious. And may we read ahead and may we look and see what is it that God is trying to teach us in these moments. God, thank you ultimately that Jesus went to the cross, that he died for our sins, but that he rose to life conquering death. And that he hasn't left us alone to go and accomplish the task of the Great Commission, but that you have given us the Holy Spirit that we might be able to go and make disciples. God, renew a passion within us to do that as we study through this book together. Go with us today. Thank you for all that you are doing. We love you. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. There's snacks through the curtain here or around back.